Hello and good evening and welcome to another episode of Religions, Regimes and Refugees and their multicultural mess and secular scam. Thank you very much for joining me today. I hope you had a great day. You were safe and you had great conversations. You gained some knowledge, you did some research and you offloaded a lot of information from your chest and made space for more information. Because that's what we are about, uh, gaining the knowledge, having that conversation, making every junction into an intellectual laboratory, and, and healing. This is about healing. So the more knowledge we have, the more we heal, the more we calm down, the more we balance our electromagnetic field and do our duty to, the, to ourselves and the people around us, um, and peace. So we are on the series of uh, Dharma, Vedas, and um, Hind, Hinduism. Um, I'm going to go straight into it. Last, yesterday, we stopped at the evolution, the Vedic story of evolution. It, uh, there is no story like it on the, sub, on, on the planet, absolutely none. Everyone comes up with Adam and Eve, and we know what that is about, absolutely Ridiculous. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, I apologize to all those who believe in it. Uh, but I don't know why I'm apologizing. But as an ex-Christian, an ex-Abrahamic uh, follower, or slave, as I like to say, um, I just, I never agreed with it. I ne it never sat with me. I just, I couldn't come to terms with it. And with science has shown us that uh, we have evolved. Um, and we have there, the Vedic story of uh, evolution is a fact. Um, this is what the ancients used. Now, whatever parable you want to use to understand this, this concept of evolution, so be it, fellas. It's up to you. Uh, but the bottom line is we have evolved. Okay, and we're particle, we're wave particle um, metamorphosis, um, an electromagnetic field in the modern world, we call it quantum mechanics. So let's get straight into it. Like I said, this is the basic parable of evolution. Different schools of thought might interpret it in different ways. One will see differences in this parable across the different denominations of the planet. However, the basic parable is in place for one reason only. To this to give you the story of creation in a story form, which is supposed to match the evolution of our cosmos. A simple reason being, we are the cosmos. Whichever parable you use to interpret our human evolution or creation, it is fine. It is not a parable that matters, it's, as the parable has no value. It is always the knowledge of the cosmos behind the parable which is important. There is no obligation to the parable. It is only your duty as a human being to understand your individual value based on the grammar that makes you human. With the rest of the world, this is seen as some pagan garbage. You know how the Abrahamic fates go. That is degraded to suit the superiority of uh, some cultures, empires, religions, who do not understand the knowledge of the Vedas. However, it's okay. What is important to understand that there was a civilization that existed prior to our current civilization that had this knowledge and passed it on to us. Unfortunately, we lost most of it, institutionalized the rest and rebranded it into religions. To make a long story short, if we are able to get back our knowledge and recreate this mosaic of our cosmos, no one on this planet can subjugate us. So what is this mosaic? The sun is an electromagnetic um, power, 
which is known as the creator. Okay, um, it holds our cosmos together. Okay, that that we're all agree uh, in agreement with. Um, it holds the cosmos together. It has it has over billion billions of years of photosynthesized uh, to finally create mass. This mass has become our planets, life forms, and finally different species of flora and fauna. This flora and fauna have finally metamorphosized to create various species of life, out of which one of the species is the human race. There is no one species more important than the other. At our root, we are all the electromagnetic field. We are like sandstone, sedimentary rock, formed for millions of years of fusion and sand. Um, that's particles. Size, sand-sized particle grains of minerals, rock, and organic material. This fusion is a result of our physical and chemical weathering. At its core, if you break down the sandstone, you will get sand-like particles. Similarly, if you pour water on sandstone, instead of falling over and by its side, it will seep into your pores, which is then accumulated with its crevices, within its crevices. This is one reason why below the Sahara, the largest desert in the world, we have aquifers or underwater lakes. This is because the sand has formed sandstone, which is so porous um, that the water was collected below and accumulated into uh, lakes. This water um, then feeds. This water then feeds many oases in the desert. Um, similarly, the human species of life on the planet is formed out of millions of years of photosynthesis of the sun's electromagnetic rays. At our core, we are still the, an electromagnetic field, the cosmos. Our physical body is just an envelope that gives us a visual, but has no value on its own and no power. You need not cover up your body to feel meta metaphysical. Sorry, you don't need to cover up your body to feel the metaphysical. It is the metaphysical that is the power that controls our physical mass at all times. Without the metaphysical, our electromagnetic charge, the physical, will collapse. This metaphysical is 4.6 billion years old and regenerates with every generation. Um, whatever transpires in the previous generation is stored in your DNA and transferred to our next generation. Each generation is a packet of data. So, so how does this combination work? Let me explain it to you in a very, very simple manner. Okay, uh, I'll make it as simple as possible. I know it's not the easiest to understand. Um, so we all have come to know the internet. It is a global network of computer servers forming worldwide webs or a mosaic. The internet works as such. When we type a command or a search engine, for example, www.visitcanada.ca, the remote server that houses the data for this visit, for Visit Canada website will send us several packets of data to our computer through different routes that are connected to the internet all over the world, whichever is the fastest route to our computer. Once our computer receives the packet of data, it has to be resembled in the sequence that it was sent by the host server. If even one packet of data is missing or, re or reaches our computer a little late, the page does not open. This page, not 
not opening means we have not received all the information. So like the internet, we are an electromagnetic cable made up of sequences of data going back 4.6 billion years. Each sequence in, in return is made up of packets of data containing information of that generation which is stored in your psychic. Each psychic is a server. Hence our individual psychics or servers are made up of billions of years of packets of data in the sequence that it occurred. When we ask for this information or acquire knowledge, the knowledge we receive has to match what's stored in our servers. If it does not match, then the page does not open. This page not opening in human terms is called turbulence or violence. When we face violence, you are only saying one thing. The knowledge you are receiving is not a symbol in the sequence of the packets of data already stored in your psyche. The sum total of all the packets of data is, your, is our sequence or the components in our equation right from the source of creation, that is our solar system. To date is to date, um, and it's our value. So there are no two people with the same value. Each and every one of us has an individual sequence. This is what we call our DNA imprint, which is unique to each individual. Sometimes we hear the word, the term Fibonacci sequence. The Fibonacci sequence is a, se is a series of numbers. So 0, 1, 1, 2, 2, 3, 3 to 5, 5 to 8. So I'll repeat that. I'll explain how it works, okay? Uh, the, the number is found, the next number in the sequence is found by adding up the two numbers before it. Okay, so 0 plus 1 is 1. 1 plus 1 is 2, uh, 2 plus 3 is 5, five, 5 plus 3 is 8, 8 plus 5 is 13, 13 plus 8 is 21, 21 plus 13 is 34. So you see the next number is found by adding up the two numbers and which we have to construct, reconstruct in order that it is recorded in our memory or psyche. If I miss one packet of data, it is the in the sequence, then it leads to turbulence and finally violence and conflict. The sequence works in the form of astronomical cycles, similar to the Fibonacci sequence. You cannot override a cycle and make up your own sequence to suit God. Everything in the universe is a cycle, hence what goes up will come a full circle. So this is your homework. Go onto the internet, go on to um go on to YouTube and type Fibonacci sequence. Fibonacci is F-I-B-O-N-A-C-C-I sequence. Okay, I'm gonna post it on my internet sorry on the Facebook page and you can then take a look at it later once I finish my podcast. Um, and absolutely, you can go through it and research it and understand who we are. Okay? Um, so that's the homework for today. I feel like a school teacher. In principle, we're supposed to know the components in the whole sequence to know our whole value. Okay. Every generation is supposed to transfer the knowledge of their sequence to the next generation in order for our civilization to continue and to regenerate. Okay. However, 
we have forgotten our knowledge and a sequence of data along with it. Hence our civilization, sorry, civilization is in turbulence in our current times. Okay. Um, so, to recap the knowledge of astronomy stored in the um, stored in our Vedas, we do not know when they were actually put together. Indian academia believes that they predate our current precession cycle. Therefore, it's that's before the Ice Age. Vedas originated as oral texts transmitted through oral traditions and said to be written down around 1500 BCE by the, by the sold-out Abrahamic media and academia of the world. However, there is no consensus of its actual time. On the Indian subcontinent, we know they predate our precession cycle. The fact of the matter is that the flora and fauna, including its various species of planet, are migratory species. As the planet oscillates due to its precession cycle, it means an east-west-north-south orbital oscillation of our civilization. Man has been nomadic since we have historical records. As we started farming, agricultural tracts of land grew. Mankind settled down and slowly over time became territorial. Agricultural societies were formed. Thus, there is not one human being who is native to any land on this planet, nor any group or culture native to a specific territory. We are mixed, intermarried over millions of years, and our color and complexion features, forms have, features and forms have changed as we migrated from one region to another. The color of our skin has never been a factor for man to move around until very recently. We are a tapestry of colors. Okay. Um, modern day citizens, um, I think I've gone through this. Um, Sorry, I got lost a little bit. I do apologize. I lost my page. Hmm, isn't that nice? Um, so, effectively, as I said, we are a tapestry of colors and history. To come back to the actual text of the Vedas, they are collectively known as the Samhitas, meaning collections. So we are going to go through the Vedas now. We understand the sequence of who we are. We understand the Fibonacci sequence. We understand the creation of our planet. And we are going to go now to the Vedas. So the Vedas collectively known as the Samhitas, the full Vedic Samhitas, that's S-A-M-H-I-T-A-S, I'm sorry if I don't pronounce it correctly. The Rig Veda, the Sama Veda, the Yajur Veda, the Atta, Atharva Veda. I repeat, Atharva Veda. The Vedic texts are transmitted by oral traditions, preserved with precision, with precision, with the help of elaborate algorithmic chants. Sanskrit, the, the language of the Vedas, is a metric language. Thus, the teachers, also are known as gurus. Um, Make, made use of meters to maintain the sequence of verses and text in order not to break the procession 
Um, and let the sages transmit the text in oral fashion for thousands of years, we think dating back prior to the Ice Age. So the gurus, ancient gurus, used these meters um, because uh, Sanskrit is a um, metric language. It's also a sound language. It's not a written language. Um, so they used this, these meters and, or rhythm and scales to maintain the sequence of verses and text. The Rig Veda is the oldest. Okay, it uses 1,028 hymns and it's divided into 10 books called mandalas. It is followed by three remaining Vedas. The Samaveda, derived from Saman, meaning song, and the Vedas, meaning knowledge. Um, so the Samaveda is the Veda of melodies and chanting to balance the electromagnetic field and are cymatic frequencies. Its text consists of 1,549 verses. All but 75, all but 75 verses have been taken from the Rig Veda. Only three recensions of the Sama Veda have survived. The Atharva Veda, which is the third Veda, um, derived from the Atharvanas and Ved Veda. Um, so the word is from the Atharvanas and Veda put together. The procedure for everyday life. The Atharva Veda is composed of a collection of 730 hymns and with about 6,000 mantras divided into 20 books. The Yajurva Veda, meaning from Yaj, meaning worship, is the Veda primarily to, of prose, mantras for worship rituals. An ancient Vedic text, it is a compilation of ritual offering formulas that were said by the priest while an individual performed rituals ritual action, uh, actions that such as those before the Yajna fire. It has about 1,875 verses, the, the unarranged. Um, I don't know, I, I don't know why I don't like this part, but it says that's what I found out, the black verse, black part, or unarranged. I don't know where they get this word black from, but anyway. Yajurva has survived in four ascensions, while two ascensions are white, that means arranged, uh, and the rest are unarranged. Yajurva Veda has sometimes has survived into modern times. There are four divisions, uh, that is the Samahitas or collections um, of these Vedas. Um, the Brahmanas, 108 Upanishads, and the Arya... Arya, uh, Aranyakas, sorry, Aranyakas. Um, so, Samahitas, I repeat, I apologize, I'm going to take that back. There are four divisions, okay? Samahitas, Brahmanas, 108 Upanishads, and Aranyakas, okay? So, those are the four divisions of the Vedas, uh, of each Veda, and we will go now into something that is an umbrella for all these texts. Two words, Shruti and Smriti. So all Sanskrit texts are divided into two groups or canons. Okay, Shruti and Smriti. Shruti means that which is heard or come down from the ages, sages untouched and unchanged for 10,000 years or more. Okay, the Vedas fall into this category, specifically the Rig Veda, the Sama Veda, and the Yajur Veda. So these three Vedas come into the first category. That's the Shruti unchanged from over 10,000 years. Smriti is all post-Vedic texts that include interpretations of man. 
that is the Vedantinas, the Puranas, the Itihas. 99% of all Sanskrit texts are Shruti, meaning non-canonical. They are thoughts... There are thoughts and interpretations of man that can be changed or updated any time. Every Dharmic following has a right to defer with these texts and add them to give to any given knowledge. Knowledge and interpretation is timeless. So you can interpret and reinterpret um, a, um, a text. Um, a smriti is all post-Vedic text. Smriti, that's all that's come down through the sages without being touched. And um, there we go. Um, so everyone has the right to defer. Okay, you are not obligated to have the same um, opinion, and, and this is how it differs from the Abrahamic religions. You see, Abraham, Abrahamic religious religions insist that you accede only to them. I'll say, okay, and that's why they have so much of violence. Okay, because they impose their interpretation on you. And that's the way, and that's the Abrahamic text. Automatically, you're not even allowed to have an opinion. Okay. Um, however, the Vedas, or Dharma, is all about having your interpretation because we're currents and waves. We're thousands and thousands of currents and waves. We will never see the same angle at the same time because we are cyclic. We are 360 degrees. So we cannot be, uh, we cannot have the same opinion. But Abrahamic religions think that Earth is flat. And so everyone must obey them, everyone must submit, and everyone must be a slave. Two very important Sanskrit texts are called epics, the Mahabharata and the Ramayana. Okay? These are epic poems of a time gone by that fall in this category. Time range for these compositions is approximate. There are some people who do say when the Ramayana was, um, was written down, um, I tend to be believe the one that is, um, I think, 3000 plus BCE, but I'm not a specialist on that, so I'm not going to give my opinion on that, but you can have your say. These are old texts, okay? You're going back 5,000 years approximately, so um, do your research and find out how, how old these texts are, and uh, absolutely have a good time. Uh, because don't worry, no one's going to be offended. Dharma is fantastic, absolutely fantastic. Uh, now, we've heard about Ram, Lord Ram. We hear this all the time. Ramayan, Ram, Ram, uh, Jai Shri Ram. Okay, so who is Ram? Ram, sometimes known as Lord Ram, or Rama, uh, Rama in South India, is a very important figure in India and Sanskrit history. He is the lead figure in the Sanskrit epic Ramayana and the 7th century and the 7th avatar of Lord Vishnu. So reincarnation. Okay, uh, His life and actions are considered to be a role model for his worshippers. The ideal human. He is said to be born in Ayodhya in the state of modern Uttar Pradesh. The current political dispute in Ayodhya about the Ram Janmabhumi um, Mandir or, or temple is precisely a dispute to decide where Lord Ram was being born, was really born. Um, just to give you a little hint, I did all this research before the temple, the verdict of the Supreme Court that gave the temple, the land to the temple for it to be built. So all of this was put together way back when, and I'm just using it now. 
so just a little hint. The Bhagavad Gita. Everyone's heard about the Gita. This is the one book that most people read and most non-Hindus know about. The Bhagavad Gita is, or simply the Gita, is a metaphor derived out of the Mahabharata. It is a 700 verse, verse book. Gita means song. Bhag means comes from the words wealthy and prosperity, wealth. Uh, that means, so the Bhagavad Gita means the universal song that brings you wealth. Wealth as in knowledge, okay, very important. And wealth is not money, 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 it's knowledge. There is no literal translation. Songs and poetry in the ancient world were platforms to spread wisdom and acquire knowledge to discuss and debate. Thus the Gita is a universal platform. The Bhagavad Gita was written down over 2,000 years ago before the concept of Hinduism ever took place and, and way before the organized religions of Abraham were ever heard of. It is not a religious book of any kind. So the Bhagavad Gita is not religion, my friend. It is mainly wisdom to realign and re-engineer the cosmic grammar that makes us up. The Gita is also a smriti. That means, um, we've talked about this before, post-Vedic text. Um, um, yes, and it's an interpretation of Lord, uh, of Krishna's uh, message to Arjuna. Um, so it's a, it's a smriti. Gita is a parable form, but based in this uh, is in a parable form, but based in a context. The context is a war taking place in a place called Kurukshetra, a city in what is modern North India, close to the Pakistan border. The war is between two factions of a feudal family, the Panwas and the Kauravas, each fighting for inheritance and control of the kingdom. One of the Pandava princes is having a near emotional. One of the Pandava princes, Arjuna, is having a near emotional breakdown at the thought of going to war against his own cousins, family members, and family members. Krishna is Arjuna's friend and charioteer, and counsels him on his duty to continue our journey, our self-defense uh, of self-defense and his obligations. However, he also counsels him to make the junction in an intellectual laboratory. Um, he also counsels him to make this junction an intellectual laboratory. Understanding the sequence of events that led him to the clash it would produce. In a nutshell, Krishna is telling the Panva prince Arjuna why that while his obligation to continue to defend his kingdom is his duty. It is also incumbent upon him to understand the currents that form his waves. The reason being, we are cosmic and we are cyclic. We are the cosmos. We too are cyclic. It means we will repeat the same events in different formats under different labels. The labels will change, but the mentality will still be the same because we are all currents and waves. So it is incumbent upon every single one of us to make the, every junction in our lives into an intellectual laboratory, undo the knots, learn, empower ourselves with the knowledge of the journey from every angle leading up to that junction and move on. It is not to change the past, but it is to understand and balance out the waves of the future so that we do not repeat the same events leading up to the next junction. Okay, The important message of the Gita is 
is about eternally being on a quest for knowledge. The knowledge of our physical junctions in life and the metaphysical cosmos that precipitates it. It is to adjust, to learn, to evolve into this journey we choose to travel upon. Every junction in life is exactly the same. It's just a label that changes. It's our currents that form the waves. It's not the waves that form the currents. The, cu the currents are the same all across the cosmos. The Gita is about the war within and not the war outside. It is, if we understand the wars within, introspect, evolve, we can project the entire cyclic action. What is very important is that he leaves the decision to Arjuna, then letting him decide for himself. This in itself is very important part of understanding a simple fact of the cosmos, in that we have no control over the currents, nor the waves. We can balance the negative and the positive to our efforts, but we have no control over the outcome. My friend and all those who are listening, this is the most important part of my entire journey. When I read the Gita, and when I read it again, because you don't understand it, when I did my research, I went and did layer upon layer upon layer. And this is the thing that healed me. I cannot tell you what it means. It was the beginning of that journey, that that healing process for me. I have gone through 3,000 years, my ancestors, 3,000 years of Abrahamic, I don't know what you can call it. Um, and uh, I don't know what we did to come to this journey. But that healing process started when I finally understood the Gita and finally put it together in my mind what Krishna was saying. And from that time, it has got so much better. I can sleep at night. It is fantastic. It is beautiful. And to Krishna, I know you've been gone so long. But I say thank you. Thank you for being there for us and thank you for your message. So basically, in a nutshell, I'm going to say it again. Krishna looks at Arjuna and says, where Arjuna asks, he doesn't want to fight. Krishna says, look, you've come to this junction in life. You've come to the battlefield. You have to fight. It's like the riots going on. You can't all of a sudden get cold feet and say, well, you know, uh, I'm not going to do anything. You're there. You fight. You and go and, and survive and survive and defend yourself because you come to the junction. But if you don't want to fight, it is incumbent upon you. Every time you fight and you see the, 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 the people on the ground, heal, uh, sick, hurt, blood, bones, uh, you know, dead, uh, injured, look at him clearly. And it is now incumbent upon you to ask you, why have you come to this junction in life? You have to retrace your step, generation after generation after generation after generation, up the cycle, down the cycle, up the cycle, down the cycle, again and again and again, and you will see the person on the other side is the same as who you are. You just split in two different ways, have gone to the different ends of the cycle, and now you've come down right through the cycle to the bottom of the cycle, and you're fighting. You'd, you've been on this journey for so long that you don't recognize your own self anymore. But you fight. So it is important for you to understand you're exactly the same as the person opposite you. And if you don't want to fight, you have to have this knowledge to understand. And once you heal, even when you're at rock bottom, 
there will be people who come to help you instead of fighting with you and fighting against you. Okay, that is very, very important. Uh, so now we go to another very, very important uh, part of the Vedic uh, uh, umbrella of text uh, and the Upanishads, one absolutely amazing um, set of books. Um, so we'll do with the Upanishads now. The Upanishads are another important group of Sanskrit text. comes from the meaning Upa, means near, and Shad means to sit, meaning something like sitting down near. The concept from students who would sit at their teacher's feet, engaging in spiritual or cosmic knowledge. The same that it is still done today in many ashrams. There are 200 surviving Upanishads, but only 13 or 14 considered important. The Upanishads provide general philosophical principles that explain and provide commentary on the concept noted um, in the Vedas. However, there is no single thought system. The concept stood, the, co the commentary, um, the commentary is on the metaphysical cosmos and its duality, thereby giving mankind its place within the system and its various dimensions through adjustments. Some of the basic principles are samsara or reincarnation, um, karma, that is action and consequences, dharma, or duty to ourselves to uphold and enhance the knowledge of the cosmos while constantly realigning ourselves in conjunction with geomagnetism of the land. Thus the commentary of the Upanishads having come about prior to the advent of feudal religions gives up an insight into the life of these feudalistic empires took hold um, in time life before these feudalistic empires took hold of civilization. In a nutshell, they are telling us a simple fable that the door to happiness opens on the inside, my friends, because it is your currents that form the waves. Your currents that form the waves. Lastly, it talks about moksha, or liberation from physical life into an eternal metaphysical cosmos. Uh, there are other bodies of Sanskrit texts, post-Vedic texts, too vast to note all. There are texts on architecture, on music, on the art, on dance, on medicine, mathematics, aeronautics, wellness, and sciences. Very often, one will see this, the suffix sutra attached to a text. It, is literally, it literally means string or thread. In the case of literature, it is used to denote a manual or text. Thus, one has, for example, the Kama Sutra. The Kama Sutra has nothing to do exclusively about sex and error. Erotism. It's a book with knowledge of living well. Kama means desire and pleasure. The Vedic science has for every single individual four pillars of gold, which is automatically uh, four pillars or goals which he automatically lives by in his life. So, Dharma, Artha, Kama, and Moksha. Okay, thus a duty to align your to align with the um, with the the cosmos, the metaphysical uh, mag mag magnetic poles of the planet. Okay, and by by understanding the magnetic poles of the planet, you you balance your magnetic field and you do your duty to yourself and society around you. So, uh, your duty to align. Okay, um, that is dharma economic and financial empowerment um, and independence 
artha. Okay, so dharma and artha. Artha is economic and financial empowerment and independence. Kama, which is desire, pleasure, affection, love. That is kama. Moksha, which is liberation from the cycle of life and death. Um, and rebirth. All above, all of above being cyclic manifestation of a cosmic energy. A, a life, a human who understands a cycle of life and remains in alignment will automatically excel and produce superlative experiences of life in each of the four categories. Each of these principles have produced secondary literature and genres, namely Dharma Shastra, Atta Shastra, Moksha Shastra, the Kama Shastra, all which have been preserved in the palm leaf manuscripts. The Kama Sutras uh, belong to the last genre. Thus, the Kama Sutra is much more than sexual positions, but pleasure uh, of love, emotions, building and maintaining relationships. Kama Sutra talks about the same sex relations and also homosexuality. Um, so, our cosmic knowledge called Vedas is not very difficult to understand. Its ancient knowledge comes from our ancestors about our eternal cosmos and all it contains. No religion whatsoever in the Vedas, okay? The Sanskrit texts were not only Indian, it was the literature of the entire planet. This knowledge between the duality of the physical and metaphysical became two separate categories and lost sight of one another. Losing this knowledge of duality, we tumble out of sync. It, is, it will be a disjunction and I must inform you that there is no such thing as God in India. So if you're not Indian uh, and you follow some other religion, just, just be aware that there's no such thing as God in India, nor in our ancient pool of knowledge. Our ancient knowledge is in Sanskrit. We lost that language and knowledge and today we speak Hindi and English. God is not a Sanskrit word nor a Hindi word. It's a Hebrew English word. Um, sorry, I apologize. God is an English word, but it comes um, from the word Gutha, which is actually uh, a, a Germanic word which comes from Sanskrit. And it's actually in the uh, it's in the in the Bhagavad Gita. So the word Guta means um, Guta means worship, the fire worship. You know when we do the fire worship um, or the fire or uh, puja, uh, that's that's the Sanskrit word. It's Guta, Gutam, Gutam is the word, and uh, the Germanic tribes uh, pronounce it as Guta. From that we got God. So God is a is a derived ancient Sanskrit uh, Germanic word from Sanskrit and now it's become anglicized and uh, uh, yeah and everyone uses it now but it has nothing to do with India let me tell you that much uh, Indian philosophy uses the concept of the creator is one that means the creator uh, we normally use Brahma since hence, for those who say that they are millions of God in India, they are basically telling you that they are ignorant. Like I said before, the English word God comes from the Germanic word Guta or Gutam. This becomes sans this comes from the Sanskrit word Hutam. Um, I could be wrong in this uh, the word Hutam. Um, I wrote it here, but I'm not exactly sure. Hutam or Gutam, meaning to invoke, 
Yes, it's sorry, it's Hutan. My apologies. God, I'm falling asleep over here. Um, I apologize. Uh, this comes from the Sanskrit word hutam, meaning to invoke or to call upon during an offering on ancient Vedic times of fire offering. The Gita, the verse in the Gita is 4.24. Okay, so I'm not going to pronounce it because uh, my Sanskrit doesn't exist, literally. Uh, the translation of verse 4.24 is the process of offering and, and the act itself, both are Brahman, the supreme self, the fire, and the one who makes the offering itself. Both are Brahman, the supreme self. By realizing this and by being absorbed in the Brahman, all your life activities, one attains the Brahman, the supreme being. So the word here is Huttam, H-U-T-A-M. And from that word, you get the Germanic word Guta or Gutam, and that becomes God. So go figure, fellas. Uh, it's a loan word from Sanskrit, which has a rich heritage, and they went to a rebranding process after Abrahamic empires took over the planet, and now we, it's made into a highly spiritual word while professing a similar supremacist power all over all, all things, including the same Sanskrit heritage from which they took the concept. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Arabia. I think I've spoken about this before in a whole uh, podcast, but I will say it briefly again. On the same line of thought, Arabia is also a Sanskrit word, my friends. If you were not aware of this, you'd, you are now. Arabia is not English, it's not Arabic, it's Sanskrit. It comes from the Sanskrit word Arabia. It means in the beginning. The reason why this land would have been given his, its name was it, it's attached to a very important point in the planet, Cairo. Cairo is the geomagnetic center of the planet, a dual electromagnetic field that controls the Earth's gravity from its inner core meets at Cairo. Hence, knowing this point on the planet Earth's surface is very important. Hence, the land attached to the geomagnetic point would have been called Arabia, Arabia. Proof that this entire belt, the, the Middle East, is an Vedic belt. The, the, the entire Middle East belt from Western Sahara to Yemen and to India and beyond Far East is all the Vedic belt. So that's about Arabia. Now the holy cow. Okay, we've had Indians worship cows, cow worshippers, blah, blah, blah. Let me just hit that one last time, one important time, and you will see all of it, and you'll just, you'll be stunned. I think we've spoken about this one too, but it's important that I talk to you about it again and refresh your memories, because it's it's very, very important. If you've ever wondered why Indians or Hindus considered the holy cow sacred, here is your answer. When the cow sits down after grazing, then it always faces the direction of the electromagnetic poles of the planet. That is not south, but not when the animals are under high voltage power lines. Other animals, such as birds and turtles, detect the electromagnetic field of our planet. They use the electromagnetic field during migration. The electromagnetic poles of the planet move around 25 kilometers a year. Hence, you always needed the cow to show off your direction of the poles. The concept of Allah also comes from the holy cow. Listen to what I'm saying and write it down. 
The concept of Allah comes from the holy cow. You see the entire equatorial belt from Western Sahara to the Far East and the Koreas were one time a Vedic belt. Around 8,000 years ago, that's about 6,000 BCE, the Middle East and North Africa went desert in a very short span of time. The forest disappeared and so did the grass. No grass, no cows, so the civilization disappeared. In its place, there was a void. The void was filled by Semitic groups who started replicating the animals with stone idols and began praying to them. Obviously, it did not work. This ignorance led to tribal violence, and a result, as a result, empires set in and the rest is history. So 3,000 years ago, the Abrahamic feudal groups filled this void, and now we have blind fate. Semitic groups, which preceded the Abrahamic groups' um, empires, called the cow El. So in the Semitic language, even in Hebrew, El was the cow symbolizing the divine. So the cow was the divine because the cow um, always sat in the direction of the magnetic poles of the planet and the planet, the earth, the, the planets are magnetic uh, field. It, it roams on its magnetic axis. I'm sorry, it's roam, should I say? It uh, rotates around its magnetic axis. Uh, there's an axis of the planet and that at the center of the planet, uh, your magnetic field is then atta is attached to the sun. It's the sun that's controlling your magnetic field, uh, holding it up and and the earth, every planet has its own field, so we have our own field, and every magnetic, um, every planet has magnetic poles. And those poles, the, you have to know the direction of the poles in order to align yourself, and the cow is the only one that symbolizes that, uh, and that's why it was called divine. So the cow was called El. As the electromagnetic poles of our planet are controlled by the sun, or in English, the crater, the symbol of El or was the cow or the oxen. This is why the first alphabet in Hebrew is El. El or Aleph. And the national airline of Israel is El Al. Once the Abrahamic religions formed and remove the symbol, they change the story, but still use the ancient symbol of the cow, that is L for the divine, meaning they change the story, but the mentality still remained the same. The word L became Elohim, Elahi. Um, the L later evolved to Al in Arabic, and from there we get Allah. So while Islam and Abrahamic religions claim to pray to the oneness of God, they are actually still praying to the cow which even Hindus don't do. Yes, my friends, Abrahamic religions pray to the cow. The cow is sacred, but not the creator. In reality, both God and Allah are loan words from Sanskrit and Vedic concepts. Yes, I said that, and it is a fact. Um, I can't help you any other way because it's a fact. So I will leave, take your leave on this. I hope I was informative today. Um, and next time we'll go, we'll, we're still on the topic of the Vedas, uh, but we'll start with the history of the Indian subcontinent as far back as we can go, and we'll do Indian history. Um, so I hope I was helpful today. Um, 
I ask you to research everything I say. Please do research the Fibonacci sequence, cymatic frequencies, very, very, very important. On my Facebook page, I will post it, but right at the beginning of the Facebook page, if you scroll down, you will have a small documentary, YouTube documentary on our magnetic poles of the planet. It is very, very, very important for you to know that because it's science. Science is astronomy, and the Vedas means knowledge knowledge of astronomy. Without astronomy, we are no one because we are the cosmos. So it's important to know that. And I wish you a lot of peace. I thank you for your time. I thank you for tuning in every single day. It is a pleasure having this podcast and I wish you a a pleasant day ahead. Thank you. Stay safe and um, bless you all.